if podcasts were made like sausages, this is the one that is so jam-packed with meaty goodness that it would burst at the seams and would not be able to be sealed up. I'm telling you, the Scott Radley Show podcast today jammed, jammed with nutritional intellectual value. Here's what we're talking about today. We're going to be chatting about Prince Andrew pulling away from royal duties because of his alleged involvement in the Epstein situation. What a mess that is. Uh, We'll be talking about the royal family and what their role is these days and how it's changed. Uh, We're going to chat about World Toilet Day. Not a joke. Talk about toilets. You think it's a joke. Not a joke. Billions of people around the world are suffering from illnesses and everything else because of lack of sanitation. We'll talk to someone in Africa who is helping to put toilets together for people. Uh, We're going to chat about this, speaking of toilets and sewage, this scandal, this sewage scandal that is growing in Hamilton. If you don't know what this is, you absolutely have to stick around and listen to this. It is stunning what has been going on. And of course, then wrapping it up with Mike Babcock being fired today. Predictable, not predictable. Maybe a little bit of both. We'll chat about all of that, though. Get a good beverage. Stick around for the next little while. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Some of you will remember, and bear with me with my uh, with my bad intro here, but some of you will remember a number of years back, there was a movie that Mel Brooks put out called The History of the World Part One. It was a very, very funny movie. Wildly politically incorrect by today's standards. But anyway, one of the scenes involved a king who basically did whatever the heck he wanted. Again, many times stuff that we would now go, oh, I'm not sure about that. But anyway, a lot of stuff that he did, and we'd always turn to the camera afterwards and say, it's good to be the king, because he could get away with anything he wanted as long as he said it's good to be the king. Uh, It's a joke, obviously. It was a humorous movie, but I'm not sure that it's all that historically inaccurate to say it wasn't all that far from the truth at one time. That for generations, the monarch, whomever, of whatever country could pretty much do whatever he, and it was usually him, wanted with a measure of impunity. You weren't going to do anything to stop the king. If he wanted to do it, he was probably going to do it. Well, we learn times change. Prince Andrew announced today that he is stepping back from royal duties after, and you probably heard this story, after finding himself tangled up in the Jeffrey Epstein sex trafficking story, a story that does not have a whole lot of upside to anybody or a lot of good parts to it. Uh, There have been allegations from one of the accusers that she was forced to have sex with the prince. Now, he was on TV. He said, no, nothing to this whatsoever. But the firestorm has not gone away. So today he has. He has said with the Queen's blessing that he will be, again, stepping away from royal duties for a time. I want to bring in Nathan Tidridge, who is a teacher, an excellent teacher, an award-winning teacher, but he's also a man who has written six books, I believe, exploring the role of the crown in Canada. Uh, Nathan, thanks for doing this today. Hey, Scott, I'm happy to be here. So uh, while I, you know, it, it maybe it's a horrible example, a Mel Brooks movie, and it, I know it's ridiculous, it's but, but at one time, would I be way wrong to say that that kind of really was the state? I mean, and we may be going back a few hundred years, but the king could essentially do anything he wanted to do to anyone at any time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And when you, when you look specifically at the, the British royals, it was like that right up until Victoria. I mean, you really didn't look to the, the royal family as any type of, of moral compass. Um, that all changed around uh, Queen Victoria's time. Do we have, do we know, I mean, you've studied this stuff. Can you think of examples that we know of that are public of, of, of things that would have been done that today we would have said, come on, you can't do that, but that would have been acceptable behavior for a monarch at one time? I mean, I, I guess mean, they, they had beheadings and stuff. I guess that counts. Sure. Oh, yeah, but I, I mean, even closer than that, in the 1800s, you had uh, King George IV. I mean, his entire life was uh, a life of, uh, I, I would use the word debauchery. I mean, he was just known for that. He was hated for it, too, by the people. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you name it, he, he pretty much did it, uh, which cut his life quite short. But that was just considered, yeah, that, 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 that was just, he was the Prince of Wales, and then he was the king, and that's what he did. And you had pretty much carte blanche to do whatever to whomever. Well, you didn't really have to take into account too much public opinion in those days. Mm. So it was it, it was seen as long as you were delivering stability and, uh, and and good times for the country. I think uh, a lot of people would kind of take a blind eye to that. 
But then the role of the crown changes, and, and as more political power is assumed by the people, the royal family had to find kind of a new role. And so that's when you see in Victoria where there's this shift, and they, the royal family becomes kind of the the standard of which uh, high society and, and, and even the regular folk kind of measure themselves up against. What was it at that time that really shifted that caused Victoria or the other monarchs following to, to have that new reality for them? For Victoria, my understanding was her, it was her husband, it was Prince Albert, who realized that uh, the, the crown has to be shown to be, to be doing something, to be playing a role in society. And uh, as political power kind of was being assumed by the parliament, um, they had to find new ways in which to demonstrate their their value to the society. And so they became, you know, patrons of the arts, and um, they attended all kinds of different functions to support different things. And, and a new interest starts coming in on the, the lives of the individual royals. So it, it, it would be not too cliche a statement then that at one time, had he been born... 100 or 150 years ago, Prince Andrew could have pretty much done anything he wanted. And again, we're not we're not saying he did or didn't do it. We don't know. He said no. They right. say yes. We're not making judgments on that. People can make their own mind. But he could have, once upon a time, pretty much done anything, and there would have been not, no, nothing anyone would have done about it. Well, yeah. And I mean, right up until 1936, you've got uh, King Edward VIII, who was very, very popular with the people. But uh, behind the scenes, he was having... Uh, numerous affairs and in particular he was um uh in a relationship with uh, a married woman wallace simpson who was already divorced which at the time would have been quite scandalous and uh but the british newspapers just didn't report on it it was just seen as uh, kind of this untouchable subject but as the new media kind of comes in um particularly after the second world war with television and things like that there's a shift away from that kind of uh, view towards the royals they become it becomes a, they become open territory and you can report on them and that deference disappears. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking with Nathan Tidridge, who's an award-winning teacher, but he's also a guy who has written a number of books on the monarchy and on the royal family and on the crown here in Canada about what's been happening with Prince Andrew, who today stepped back from royal duties because he's been caught up in this whole... Epstein situation that is really um, not appetizing. It's, it's a gross story, and uh, to have a member of the royal family involved, it's it's not seemly. Let's put it that way. Uh, Nathan, it seems, and we were just talking about this before the break, but it really seems as though in probably, I'm guessing, in the last 20, 25 years, how long ago did Princess Diana die? 25 years now, 30 years, whatever it is. Yeah, 97, I think it okay, was. Okay, so 20 years. The, the royal family almost appears to be now more of a public corporation um, that is very, very concerned with public perception of how they are handling themselves. Yeah, yeah, I, I, they are masters of it. I mean, they were... Uh, Royal family, they, uh, the Queen was on Twitter before many other heads of state, uh, the Facebook pages, uh, web pages, they, uh, they do operate on, on that level, and uh, I think they do it quite well. I know it would require all kinds of constitutional finagling and everything else, but right. is there a thought, do you think there's a thought within the folks in the royal family and around the royal family that this is now necessary because if we don't listen to the public and if we don't present ourselves well and if we don't show that we are important and doing something worthwhile and not getting ourselves in trouble, that at some point, the British people could just say, that's it, we can save a lot of money by not having you? Yes, absolutely. The, the Queen herself has famously said, I must be seen to be believed. Um, mm. and, and and that's true. And their their role largely now is, we call it soft power, the power of influence and of convening people and gathering people. And, and a big part of that is, is representing the very best of uh, not only British society, but Canadian and New Zealand and Australia and all of that. And uh, and that is a that that requires a, a huge commitment and a huge responsibility. And the Queen herself has done that remarkably well. And uh, um, but when like what Prince Andrew has done is he has compromised the integrity of, of the royal family and uh, through through um, 
alleged decisions that he's made, and uh, and that would be a, it would be seen as a huge problem. Right. If you're going to do the things that you just described to be the bringer together for all these things, you have to have the moral high ground to do that. Yes, uh, or at least... Or the perception yeah. of it. Yes, absolutely. And, and I mean, the, the only other time, and there may be others, but the time that I can remember, the only other time, and I mentioned it a moment ago, where the royal family was really seemingly in the crosshairs of the public was when Diana died, and they seemed to be on the opposite side of the view that many people in the public had, and there were a lot of questions about whether they were still relevant. Yes, and I think that's, we're seeing the product of that now. So I think they... That when Diana died, that that triggered a huge reexamination of the royal family um, as an institution and how it operated and how it communicated with the public, and um, and I you're, you see the results of that now. There's a lot more outreach. Um, they're a lot quicker to uh, like they've adapted very well, and I, I think that's why the crown is such a successful institution because when it adapts, it, it adapts remarkably well. Because it knows that if it doesn't, it can be uh, it can be discarded. So again, we're not passing judgment on whether Prince Andrew did or didn't do what he is alleged to have done. That said, if you had to guess, do you believe that he made this decision to step back from royal duties, or was he told you are stepping back from royal duties? And by the way, make it sound like you chose to do it. I think it's. I definitely think there would have been a meeting called. And uh, and a very serious conversation had, um, and I think it, it might lean closer to the, to the second statement that you said than the first. Is it relevant though? I mean, here, here's the thing, and, and it sound it may sound glib. I don't know. Um, yeah. I had to look up today because to, I'm thinking, okay, what about Prince Edward? What, what's he up to? Is he even still alive? And I had to look it up because he is. You know, there's Prince Charles, who is relevant. He's the future monarch. Yeah. There's the Queen. There's the Prince uh, um, Prince. Uh, William, who's going to be the future. I mean, they're relevant people. Do, do we need Prince Andrew? Do monarchists need Prince Andrew involved? Well, to take Prince Edward, I mean, he's the colonel in chief, or sorry, he is um, doing a lot of work on behalf of the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry right now because of his his father's the colonel in chief, the Duke of Edinburgh is. And when, when his father passes, I, I would say there's a very good chance that he would inherit that. So while on an international stage, um, and even for the general public, they might not know what the other members of the royal family do, but for the organizations that they're working with, so, um, they work very closely with certain re- uh, organizations and, and regiments, it is a very important role. And so for right now, uh, I'm sure that those regiments that are associated with the, the Duke of York and those um those different uh, companies. I mean, he, the Duke of York was really big with um, it's, uh, some pitch at the palace, which is a business initiative he was doing. Well, since all these allegations have come out and since his interview, they've been losing a lot of major donors. So for that, for that charity, it's, this is, it's, this is catastrophic. So, um, so yeah, while we, the general public might not know for those charities and those organizations, that have members of the royal family working on their behalf, it, it is very important. It's an interesting story. Uh, again, uh, who knows if we'll ever get to the bottom of what really happened here, but uh, in the meantime, um, one It'll of the... Be mem- a Netflix show. Yeah, well, it, The Crown <laughs> Season 6 That's will, right. be, uh, will right. be what it comes to. Uh, Nathan Tidridge, always appreciate having you on here. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, yesterday, you may have heard this, yesterday was World Toilet Day. No, we're not making jokes. We're not having a lot of fun with it right now because we could. There's a lot of stuff we could say. There's a lot of funny stuff, but we're not because outside of North America and the developed world where we all are, this is a serious issue. Sanitation is a huge problem. According to the United Nations, 4.2 billion people live without safe sanitation, and it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to realize what the problem is here, why this is an issue. Disease can more easily spread. Uh, Drinking water can be polluted. There's all kinds of things, and all these then lead to chain reactions to what they say are tens of thousands of deaths every year simply because we don't have in these areas proper sanitation. My next guest is joining us tonight from Malawi, which is on the east coast of Africa. You kind of go Tanzania, Kenya, Tanzania down there, and then it's right below there. Uh, She's a Canadian woman who founded 
Love a Village Mission, which helps people in these parts of the world. Uh, yesterday, she was helping build some sanitation projects in that part of the world. Her name is Julie Seath. Julie, thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here. And thanks for, I know it's the middle of the night there and we woke you up, so thanks for doing this. It is. It's one thirty a.m., but I'm really happy to be here. It's an important topic. Well, you know, and again, it's it's hard to talk about toilets and bathrooms without making it sound like it's not really a big deal because we very much take it for granted here and don't really think about it. Um, what is for most people, especially those who are living way out in the rural areas, are we really legitimately talking about just a hole in the ground or standing behind some trees or whatever? Yes, we are. Open defecation here is uh, common, uh, often without any sort of uh, structure that's been built either by mud and stick or with um, hand-baked brick. Um, So it is a major problem. 85% of this country lives in rural setting in extreme poverty, and almost half of the population of approximately 19 million are living without safe sanitation. So not to be, again, putting too fine a point on it and being too gross, but I mean, you are literally finding a place to go and then just going. I mean, is there, are we, are they, are we digging holes even for this or is it just right there and then you walk away? Well, the men have it quite easily. They can do it wherever they want, part of their business. But um, yes, uh, each household generally, uh, some of them are sharing. They just literally are digging a hole in the ground. And if they have the capability to build something around it, they are. Um, We're targeting um, a large uh, group of people who would be considered vulnerable. Uh, That's the elderly, uh, the physically or mentally disabled, and those who might have a chronic illness. And we're helping them um, put a structure around the hole in the ground that they may have had someone dig for them. This may be a ridiculous question, but socially there, is it a social issue for privacy and things like that? Or because they've grown up with it, because they've lived with it all their life, it's just an acceptable thing? Is it, is it, is it shameful or embarrassing or is it just okay? Um, I think as a, a Canadian woman here, I find it embarrassing, but I think... Um, I think generally dignity is um, something that is important. Um, Safe sanitation is a human right and it's a crisis here. It's a global crisis. And um, it is is rather embarrassing, particularly for women and for girls, especially those who are menstruating. Um, It's it's an embarrassment. And we're also uh, dealing with that issue with the two primary schools here. We've put in some girls. They use them as a urinal. They say nobody poops during the school hours. So we've uh, got some uh, girls' urinals going into place here so that they can have some privacy because it is, the boys are often teasing the girls when they're going and using the washroom. From your time over there, can you, we hear from the United Nations about these numbers. Can you see, can you draw a direct line in your experience from the sanitation situation to illnesses? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a, there was an under five clinic in our community. We now have nothing there. But we noticed that um, through the worker, the placement worker that was there, he was able to see um, with our water projects and with our sanitation projects um, a, a decline in the number of children in particular under five coming with uh, diarrheal problems or any intestinal sorts of problems. Okay, so if, if that's the case, and, and I believe that it is, and again, the numbers back it up, why is it that people here, we think of, you know, if we get a, a, one of the catalogs that are out there now, either online or in print, for some of these aid organizations, you want to, at Christmas, do some donation to a company, we get an opportunity to, we think about vaccines or school supplies or a goat or mosquito nets or whatever. We never, ever, uh, that I've remembered ever seeing, we never see a toilet. Why, if this is such a big problem, why is it so ignored back here? I actually don't know the answer to that question. We're dealing with it, and uh, we do have one of those stereotypical, quote, catalogs out there, and we do have toilets in it. It is, it is a crisis. It's a right, and without it, um, people are dying. The elderly, the chronically ill, and the under fives, they are dying from um, uh, improper sanitation. 
Um, so it is. It's one of the most critical things. Without it, you can't have a community advance. You have people who are ill. They're unable to be uh, in their fields growing their food. They're unable to go to school. Children are often asked to take care of uh, those who are ill from such things, um, and they're missing school. So it's, it, it's absolutely imperative that everybody has a way to uh, have proper sanitation. It's, um, it's, a, it's a human right to have that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting with Julie Seath, uh, who joins us from Malawi on the east edge of Africa. Go look it up on a map if you don't know where it is. I had to look it up today. That's uh, I knew where Kenya was. I knew where Tanzania was. I knew where Uganda was. Had to refresh my memory on Malawi, which Julie probably means I didn't pay any near enough attention to geography in high school or something. Anyway, um, let me let me let me ask you a question about this because I'm wondering. We're talking about toilets. We're talking about World Toilet Day. We're talking about sanitation in the developing world. You're a Canadian woman who has gone over there. Uh, you have your, your charity, your organization, Love a Village, that is doing things to help. But is this something that is very um, is important to the people there? Is this something they are driving as well? Or is this merely something that people in the developed world are going over and saying, no, you need to have toilets and sanitation? That's a fantastic question. I think um, an example is is the woman that we uh, gave a toilet to yesterday. And um, just the joy that was on her face. She doesn't even know how old she is, but she's over 80, according to her son. And um, she is dealing with having to raise herself off the ground with her hands. And in the rainy season, that's muddy. And if she's missed the hole, her hands are going in it. And... um, She's thrilled that we're using um, one of the methods for safe sanitation is is to uh, be able to ensure that the waste is away from human contact. We have flushable toilets in Canada. Here it's going into a pit latrine, and we're covering those pit latrines with slab covers, and we're giving them a treat. It's actually a treat to have a concrete pedestal to sit on. So she's sitting on concrete. And it's a raised platform similar to what we sit on at home. And she's absolutely thrilled. So there is something they really want. And they're excited to have, there's no more squatting on the ground. Uh, We had a man with a wooden leg. You can't squat with a wooden leg. And he lived his last six months of life with a pedestal toilet seat. And um, I get overwhelmed by that emotionally. And just the thought that someone who has lived their life so vulnerably and he was just thrilled to be able to have this pedestal, concrete pedestal to sit on and die six months later. It was a joy to give that to him. You are doing a lot of your work in very, very, very remote areas. I mean, literally out in the middle of nowhere. And, and I'm assuming, I don't know, but I'm assuming that most or at least many of the people there don't have the technology. They don't have the internet. They don't. So do they know, do, do these people... Uh, who are dealing with this, do they know what the rest of the world does or uses, or do they know what the sanitation systems or things are in other parts of the world? Or is this completely new when you come in with, with a toilet or with a something like a toilet and say, here, use this and sit on it rather than squatting? You know, I actually believe that uh, a large, large percentage of them have no concept of what a flushing system is. They've, they're, they're a six hour walk some of them from the roadway, which is a network of minibuses and motorcycles and bikes and cars. They wouldn't have a concept of anything flushable. The fact that they can sit on something, yes, can be a very new concept to them. And as you say, there's no, there's no sanitary system as far as plumbing or something. So what is it that, in a best case scenario in these places, what is it that you can build that creates then it's a seat but around what you do with the disposal and everything else to keep it healthy and to keep from having disease spread what can you do well we're we're we have dimensions that are required uh for a proper safe pit latrine much like our outhouses that used to be around in cottage country in canada and um that's being covered by a concrete slab that we're also teaching them how to make uh, then a brick structure is going up. There's a PVC pipe that goes into the pit that allows for the fumes to be taken outside of the latrine area. 
and um, those are what we are providing for them. We we definitely um, include their assistance. Uh, we want them to become uh, somewhat feeling some ownership towards what they're receiving as well, and they actually have a joy in participating, even if it's just passing bricks or um, helping to dig the holes. They have relatives, boys, uh, young men who are helping to get down into the harder uh, business of of being able to dig this pit for them. And, and if, if somebody was wanting to control, I mean, what does this cost to put one of these together? Um, a lot of it's handmade. The bricks are handmade, but the concrete's expensive, the PVC piping, and we do hire people. We want to hire the Malawians and empower them. We're hiring some of them to help uh, build the structure. So approximately $100 can help us assist putting one of these into place. Which would affect how many people? A household, which averages five, and we want one per household, not per village area. We want one per household. It's, uh, I say, it's one of those things that we just never, ever, ever think about here, because why would we? I mean, we, we've all grown up with flush toilet. You know, if, if it gets plugged or if the water stops, we get into a panic. We, we've never had to think about this kind of stuff. Um, if you're interested in going to Julie's website and helping out with this, I mean, there's a lot of different charities, but I'll point you to Julie's. Uh, loveavillage.org is where you can find it. You can find out about that. I'm sure that there's somewhere on there you can donate if you want to help out. Uh, Julie, I'll let you get back to sleep. It's the middle of the night in Malawi. I appreciate you doing this. Thanks so much for your work. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it a lot. Let us take another break here on the Scott Radley Show. Again, what's uh, loveavillage.org, L-O-V-E-A village.org. And uh, look, as I say, probably the least sexy thing you could ever imagine donating until you hear about how big of a problem it is around the world. And then you go, well... Yeah, you know what? It, it it maybe isn't the most glamorous thing, but it's it sounds pretty darn important. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get onto this today because uh, this now because this was just it, it was stunning. There was a shocking story at the spec.com today that I read that I had to read a couple times because I thought there had to be a typo in this, even though. I know the reporter well, and I know, no, there's no chance that Steve would have made a typo of this magnitude, but the the size of this story, the amount of, well, it's about raw sewage, basically, and the amount is absolutely mind-blowing. The story says that Hamilton City Councilors have known since January that a 24 billion liter spill of untreated sewage has leaked into Shadoke Creek over four years. And again, I went back and I thought, no way. That's got to be a typo. It's got to be million or 24,000. Nope. 24 billion with a B. 24 billion liters of raw sewage has leaked into this creek. It's enough to fill 10,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And here's the best part about this story. And when I say best, yeah, this is a good part about it, although it's best is tongue-in-cheek. It's, you know, there's no good part about this story. But the best part is it was only discovered because the SPAC, and again, my next guest, obtained confidential documents outlining this. That had not, this had not been made public. This had not been announced to people. This had, no one been told, hey, stay away from the creek. It's filled with raw sewage. No, my next guest is the reporter who got those documents and broke the story. His name is Steve Buse. You know him probably. You've read his stuff. He is an investigative reporter at the paper, has won more awards than he could put on a shelf. He joins me now. Steve, thanks for doing this today. No problem, Scott. So uh, I'm not even sure where to start on this one because, again, when I see a number like $24 billion, it's almost it's almost too, it's too big to even contemplate how much stuff was being dumped into this creek. Yeah, it's it's almost incomprehensible, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, even ten thousand Olympic-sized swimming pools is hard to to fathom. So, uh, you know, another way I broke it down is that would cover about twelve point five square kilometers of the city to a depth of two meters, and that's six foot six for people my age and older. Um, so, I mean, I'm just sort of ballparking it. I would say that's probably from about James Street to maybe Gage or Ottawa Street from Main Street to probably Barton Street or beyond. So imagine that big chunk of the lower city, uh, six foot six deep inch deep into, um, you know, raw sewage, basically. It's kind of like when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, except it's all raw sewage. 
it's 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 stunning. It seems impossible, especially in a city in, in a place that is supposed to have some kind of safeguards around something like this. So, from your reporting on this, from your looking into it, how how did this happen? How, explain what happened and then how it could happen. So, um, in uh, sometime around January of 2018, there was a malfunction at the large uh, sewer overflow tank that's uh, right across from the uh, Cathedral Basilica on uh, King Street there, uh, right across from the Spectator, as a matter of fact. And so uh, that malfunction caused uh, a discharge into the Shadok Creek, which flows beside the 403 and down into Coots Paradise. In the course of investigating that malfunction, the city became aware uh, sometime between January and July that a gate at that tank had been left partially open for four and a half years. <laughs> so for four and a half years, um, essentially untreated sewage had been uh, leaking or seeping out of that tank into the creek to the tune of when they did the calculations, 24 billion liters. And so you've got two problems here. One, uh, that you know, you've got this, this uh, problem that had been going on for four and a half years un, you know, with anyone, without anyone knowing. And that's, you know, that's obviously a big issue. Um, just as big an issue was the fact that council has been, and staff in public works have been aware of this for some time now, and this information had never been made public. So you got a bit of a Watergate situation where, you know, is it the incident that's the problem or is it the fact that it was kept from the public that's the problem? I, I wish it was just water. Um, yeah. <laughs> we'll get to the council thing in just a minute. I just want to finish with the with the stuff first because I think this is for the first thing that we want to get through. Any idea, have you had an answer yet about how it is that nobody would notice in four and a half years? Because that would suggest to me when I hear that, that there's no regular checks of any of these things. Because if it was open somewhere along the way, if there was any kind of random or yearly or annual or bi-yearly, whatever checks, somebody would have said, oh, the door's open. Yeah, so, uh, you know, according to what's in these confidential reports that that, uh, I obtained, um, there's not a lot of information about the actual, you know, how this happened. The best guesses are that uh, an automated system somehow... Uh, wasn't detecting this, so there's that problem. And then apparently there are monthly inspections of of the tank, and it wasn't noted. There was no discharge being noticed during these monthly inspections. Now maybe that's because it was you know sort of seeping out gradually. That's speculation on my part. But how could it be, Steve? Sorry to interrupt, but how could it be seeping out gradually? If we're 24 billion liters, this had to have been coming out at a reasonable clip. Yeah, you'd think so. Again, I can't speak to that. So uh, I guess the city is, and the ministry are now trying to figure out, you know, was it uh, was it some sort of mechanical malfunction? Was it left open accidentally? How did it not get noticed for 4.5 years? These are all questions that are waiting to be answered. And, and not to be gross, but just so we're clear, when you're talking about raw sewage, this is coming from people's homes and their toilets that's just pumping into this area? So it's it's actually a mixture of stuff. So th- those those large uh, sewer overflow tanks, what they're designed to do is capture... Um, Hamilton, as an old city, has a, what's called a combined sewer system. So um, storm runoff and sanitary sewage, the stuff that comes from your toilets and sinks, um, in some places travel through the same pipe. And so uh, in the old days, that stuff would just... Um, you know, sometimes there would be so much of it, it would bypass the system and just go directly into the harbor. These uh, sewer overflow tanks are designed to capture those big rain events, hold it in this gigantic concrete tank, and then once the wet weather subsides, it gets pumped through pipes to the actual sewage treatment plant at Woodward Avenue, and then it's treated and then released properly into the into the harbor. So, um, you know, so stuff is going into this tank basically to stop it from going directly into Shadow Creek and, and Coots Paradise. Unfortunately, having this gate open meant that that sort of made it all null and void. It was just seeping out of the, of the tank anyways. The fact that it is, uh, as I understand anyway, that it's a bio, like it's it's not chemicals, it's just biological stuff. Does that 
reduce the thought that anything that's going into the harbor or into the creek, that it makes it less damaging because it, it is going to be de- biologically degrading by itself? Um, sure, but lots of stuff gets gets into that too. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's whatever goes down the, you know, the pipes basically. So it's, you know, it's whatever runoff there is from storm. So that could be, you know, fertilizer, um, you know, oil and stuff from roads and things like that. It's, it's whatever gets flushed down toilets. It could be, you know, could be needles and things like that, like plastic products, like, you know, whatever it is that, that goes down there. So, um, you know, one would like to hope that it's biological, but even that causes problems because, you know, it's the loading of, um, you know, organic nutrients that's, that can be just as damaging to waterways and, and, and plants. Okay, so we've got this going on for four and a half years, and you mentioned a few moments ago that Council has known about this since January. That's what you've reported. Why then have we not heard anything about this prior to today? That's a good question. So uh, actually, Council's known about this since July of 2018. Uh, what what they know uh, since January is that the size was calculated to be 24 billion litres. Um, so the explanation from the city appears to be that um, because there's the threat of legal action, either by the ministry or by private prosecutions or p- perhaps even some sort of class action, that the city's decision was that it would be better not to make this information public. With the hope that it would never get out? So I, I guess that's where, you know, people like me and, and perhaps many other people at home sort of scratch your head and you say, well, you know, why why keep the $24 billion and the four-and-a-half-year period from being publicly released? At some point, it's either a fact or it's not a fact. And if you're going to be sued and if you're going to be facing legal action, you're going to be charged by the ministry at some point. All of that information is going to come out anyway. So I'm not sure how it's going to help your case. Um, that you, you know, whether you did or didn't make it public doesn't change the fact that it was 24 billion liters and it was a 4.5 year period. And and to the best of our knowledge, best of your knowledge, uh, are we? Do we believe that all members of council knew this, or was this some small subcommittee of three or four members of council that had been made aware of this? So, uh, you know, the, the best I can do is just go from the reports that I have, and those were uh, confidential reports prepared for uh, what's known as the General Issues Committee at City Council. Which is everybody. Which is all members of council. So one would assume that all members of council would have been provided with these reports. Um, and, you know, both of them were General Issues Committee reports. So, uh, you know, unless there was somebody who was away for all of those meetings, but you know, you'd think they would still get the information in, in a package. Uh, today, as I understand it, while you were doing your reporting on this and before this, you received also somewhere, somehow, some talking points, some sample talking points for when this, if this did or when this did become public. Am I correct that among those, the amount, the 24 billion liters was never mentioned? So in, in, the, um, in the report from September 4th of this year, um, yes, there, there was a sort of communications plan outlined um, by staff to councillors, which gave some talking points, <clears throat> you know, some of the highlights. And in, nowhere in those talking points was the actual amount mentioned, was the time period of four and a half years mentioned, uh, nor was it mentioned that the ministry was conducting an investigation, and it's possible and per- perhaps quite likely that the ministry will be charging the city um, under various environmental laws. So, well, because yeah, when I when I if I were to see a report that came out eventually and it said we've had a leak of some raw sewage into a creek, uh, my inclination, and I don't know if it would be yours as well, you may be more curious than I am, but I, I would never think, oh yeah, we're talking about twenty four billion liters. I think okay, it was a small leak. Like to leave this stuff out seems like it's kind of leaving out the most important part of this. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll leave it to other people to decide if that was a misleading strategy that was being contemplated by the city. I, I guess at the end of the day, what I find kind of confusing is that um, today they released a press release after going in camera to discuss, urgently um, going in camera to discuss the questions that I had raised um, with the chair of the Public Works Committee. 
Um, they came out, and then shortly afterwards, a press release was issued to everyone, um, basically confirming everything that I had been putting to them with all of the talking points that they had included in their communications plan that was kept confidential. And so at the end of the day, I, I say, well, you know, now you've released all of this information, what's changed? And to me, the only thing that's changed is that you were being asked some pointed questions about it and you knew that it was going to come out in the media. But if, if a legal strategy was preventing you from pr- providing this information, what's changed today? Right. Are they not going to be sued by someone or not going to be charged because all of a sudden something has been, like, it seems like it would be the same if they had told or not told. Yeah. It, it, I, it, it seems, it, unless it I'm appears, missing something. It appears that because their feet were being held to the fire today that now all of a sudden this information was being, and, you know, there's a line in the press release that says, you know, information that's come to light uh, based on the city's investigations, well, this information has come to light a long time ago. It just hadn't come to the public's light. And, you know, Steve, look, there may be some people who would say, well, you know, I kind of understand they want to get their ducks in a row and all the rest of the stuff, except that this is overlapping to some degree with the whole Red Hill Creek thing. I know it might be a different circumstance because they say that that one was lost. Those reports were lost and we didn't know. But you have a city council that has been urged and some members, as I recall, have been talking about transparency and then this which seems to fly in the face of transparency. Yeah, so, so you know, I mean, both of the reports that I obtained, uh, you know, talk about how this um, strategy of, of not making this information public was um, based on legal advice they have received from an outside lawyer who apparently has environmental expertise. So, you know, Perhaps, you know, they believe that this legal advice was, was worth following, and I'm not suggesting it's not. It's just, um, you know, you're, you're right. At the end of the day, it certainly doesn't seem particularly transparent. And if I understand... live in Hamilton. Well, and if I understand correctly, and I think you just mentioned this a moment ago, the Environment Ministry is now investigating. Stuff is happening. We, who knows what's going to happen, whether it's charges or whether it's fines or whatever else, right? I mean, some, something will come of this, certainly. Well, there's already been uh, orders um, that have been issued against the city um, with respect to, you know, when all of this came to light in July of 2018. Two weeks later, the ministry uh, issued an order to the city to do certain things. There's a long list of things that the city was required to do. Um, you know, the city's report from September of this year says that they've complied with, uh, you know, all of the requirements of that order. But when the ministry responded to me today, they said that, in fact, a second order has now been issued against the city just last week um, for further information and clarification of exactly what the city is going to do to, um, you know, mitigate and remediate this problem. Here's the, the, well, there's a lot of frustrating parts of this story. I don't want to say this is the most frustrating. This is a frustrating part about this story. And that is, I think a lot of people would say, man, I, you know, we kind of hope that this kind of behavior is, uh, is penalized somehow, or, or something is done to make sure this doesn't happen again. The problem with that is everybody I think understands is let's say the ministry of the environment gives the city a $5 million fine for this. We pay for that. I mean, ultimately it comes out of our pocket and we didn't do anything. Absolutely, and and that's probably the biggest frustration for people is that, you know, it's just money that's going to get transferred from one pocket to another. It's, you know, there's only one taxpayer, you know, and, and so, you know, if the, hit, the city's hit with a fine here, you're absolutely right. It's the taxpayers of the city that they're, they're doubly penalized here. One, they've had, you know, some sort of environmental problem foisted upon them, you know, um, without their knowledge, apparently, and now they may be you know, shelling out money to a different piece of government to fix that problem as well. Not to mention that it's going to cost additional money to remediate the creek because of the environmental problem that started this whole thing. Yeah, and I was going to ask you that just before we go here. Has anything been done, or do we now believe that the bottom of Coots Paradise is five feet deep in human poop? Yeah, so, I mean, there's not a lot of information in the reports about the actual impacts. I think that's one of the things that's still, um, you know, under, uh, you know, under consideration and and figuring out what the plan is. I know that the recommendation from the consultant they hired has been to uh, dredge 
a certain amount of uh, Shit Oak Creek from probably from the sewage overflow tank to, you know, some point out towards Coots Paradise, and that's expected to cost $2 million if the city decides that's the route it wants to take. I can tell you where I will not be canoeing next spring. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, I am laughing, but it it is a completely, completely frustrating story on so many levels, not least, as I say, of the, of which is the fact that if, you know, by the time you add fines and lawsuits and dredging and everything else and into the millions of dollars, that ultimately just goes on to our tax bill and we're going to pay for the whatever happened. And it just, it it drives you nuts how this stuff goes on. Uh, People go read this story. It is, it is, you've heard heard it from Steve now, you've heard it here, but read it. There's a lot more in the story at thespec.com. Uh, Steve Bust is the guy, is the reporter, is the guy who put this together. Steve, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. It was a great job. Thank you, Scott. Uh, look, surely there's got, and I mean, this has come before, stuff like this, but surely there's got to be some kind of system within a municipality, within a province, within a federal government when if the people who are running that organization, whether it's a city, whether it's a province, whether it's a country, if they do something that is wrong or makes a mistake, or do, regardless of what it is, and they are then penalized for it, surely there's got to be some kind of system that can exist where we say the average person who did nothing wrong and who is relying on those people to look after us in some ways... Surely they can pay the penalty or a bigger chunk of the penalty or be penalized. Like how, why, how would this automatically, and it will come back onto us? It just, it seems so wrong. It seems so frustrating. I'm not, I'm not asking for, for city staff to be thrown into debtor's prison. I'm not talking about that. But my goodness, if you are someone who this is your area of responsibility and now there's a massive fine, rather than just dumping the cost back on the taxpayer, perhaps there should be some repercussions. Yeah, you know what? We're going to you're going to have a chunk of your salary garnished for garnished for some period of time for until your percentage I mean, look, there's got to be something, but beyond that, let's go back to the story. We got to go to break. 29 Sorry, 24 billion liters. If you heard what Steve said, James to Gage, Maine to Barton. Imagine that area. Go look on a map if you want, on Google Maps. All of that, six foot six inches deep in human waste. And that's how much has been pumped apparently into the creek and then into Coots Paradise. That is a that is a monumental amount of waste for no one to have possibly noticed in four and a half years. I mean... Would would someone not have even caught a whiff of something? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's all underwater, so you don't. But anyway, go read the story. It is well worth reading. It's big. you want to keep up on this stuff. You want to be aware of this stuff. It is uh, it's important, and keep up on it to see where it's going to go from here. This is this is a this is a big big story in this city. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Big news today in a in a desperate attempt to steal the headlines from the CFL with Grey Cup week and to make sure that the Tiger Cats got no attention, the Toronto Maple Leafs said, you know, we're not really sure we don't like Mike Babcock, but we got to do something to stay on the front page. So they fired him today. I think that's the theory anyway. Mike Babcock let go by the Leafs. I think he has like three and a half or three and three quarter years left on his contract, which is for six and a quarter million. I mean, he'll be okay. There will be no food stamps for Mike Babcock. You probably don't have to feel too sorry for him. Nonetheless, the talk of hockey today, uh, Rick Zamperin, who has been up since before the hens this morning, filling in for Mm -hmm. Bill Kelly and still up now. I don't know what you're doing still awake, but thanks for doing this. Uh, no problem. Uh, you know, I would agree to your Leafs wanting to steal the Grey Cup Thunder theory if this happened on Sunday morning after the Leafs lose a couple more games in a row. Now, that would have been a story. <laughs> People here, you know, the the theory is obviously ridiculously uh whatever the word is, but people right. here would have, they would have lost their minds at that if that had happened. They would have exploded, yeah. Uh, by the way, Rick has already, I mean, when I say he's been up since the crack of dawn, he's already written his commentary for tomorrow. It's already up there. Toronto Maple Leafs, press panic button, fire Mike Babcock. So, 
Do you think this is just a pressing of the panic button? Obviously you do. You wrote it. But I mean, it's it. do you think this is just a sort of a, a knee-jerk quick reaction because things are going so badly, let's do this right now and get it done with? I don't think this pressing of the panic button is of the knee-jerk variety because this has been, you know, stewing for a while. It's not like, you know, this team has lost, you know, 15 games in a row and, oh my gosh, the season's over, we've got to press the panic button. I think this has been more or less a slow roll. Yes, the six-game losing streak is not helping things and maybe has added fuel to the fire. But in saying all that, you know, this is a team that we all know has high expectations. Some are saying should be, uh, could be a Stanley Cup contender. They have, over the last three seasons, made the playoffs, which is great. But in each of those years, it was a first-round exit. And certainly in the last two, we all know that uh, those two exits came at the hands of the Boston Bruins, one of their divisional foes. <clears throat> and, you know, there have been rumblings that Babcock and general manager Kyle Dubas uh, don't really see eye-to-eye. They're not in 100% lockstep on how the team should A, be constructed, and B, should play. Uh, there's obviously some, uh, you know, some differences there. And there are some rumblings, certainly, in the locker room that, uh, you know, um, Mike Babcock is, you know, stuck in his ways, his system and his way of doing things uh, is not really translatable into how this team is uh, built. Uh, you know, Cal Dubas has constructed a, a unit that is highly skilled and predicated on speed, and that certainly fits uh, Babcock's game or system to a point. But the other point is, you know, his attention or Babcock's attention to detail is, uh, you know, uh, call for a higher compete level. Uh, you always notice that he uses the words, you know, dig in when things are not uh, going well. The team is not dug in. So I think that was another sign for uh, Leafs president, uh, Brendan Shanahan, and general manager Carl Dubas to say, okay, I think the the fit is no longer fitting. We have to make a change now. You know, I, I, look, I'm not going to be hypercritical of Mike Babcock. He is very, very good at what he does. That's why he's been where he is, and that's why he's made the money he does and had the opportunities he had and won gold medals and all the rest. The one thing that's been very baffling to me, though, and you know, I'd love to have him on here to ask about it. I don't know that he would give answers that would satisfy anyone. Is the, You alluded to it, Rick, is the stubbornness that it seems as though there are certain things that regardless of how many times they don't work, he did not want to change because he believes so wholeheartedly, it appears, in those ideals or those philosophies that, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, no, I don't have to change. They have to change to come to me. And that that to me is the only part of it. Like, I'm not going to question his his strategy or his motivation or anything else. But there are points along the way when you say, try, it's not working, try something different. I mean, you do that in your life. If something's not working, you do something different. I do it. Everyone does it. He didn't seem to want to do that. Yeah. What, what's that definition of insanity? Yes. Doing the thing over and over the same way and expecting different results. And that's basically, I mean, I'm kind of overstating it, but, you know, the, the, the back-to-back situation is a perfect example of that. You know, this year alone, they have not won the second game of a back-to-back uh, or, or, you know, playing one night and then playing uh, on the next night. And each of those times, you know, Frederick Anderson, who is the number one goalie of the Toronto Maple Leafs, has started the first game of a back-to-back. And the second game, it's been uh, either Michael Hutchinson, who's no longer with the team, and that goes to show how successful they run these back-to-back games, or um, uh, Kaskasuo, who made his first NHL start on uh, Saturday, and the Leafs just did not show up against the Penguins and got their doors blown off. But in each of those back-to-backs, Anderson played the first game, the backup played the second game, and every time they lost that second game of a back-to-back. And that's just one small example of you know, his unwillingness to try something new or shake it up. I mean, more or less they've played with the same lines. He may have had a couple of wingers with a couple of different centers now and again, but very rarely. But uh, they would always go back to their you know, stagnant lines again. He would roll four lines, which you know, in this day and age is not... Uh, you know, the end of the world, a lot of teams roll four lines. But, you know, when things uh, happen in a game, there was a particular reluctance to try something new or shake things up mid-game uh, or just, uh, you know, throw everything in the blender and see what, what happens in, in, in a real shakeup. The system um, looked like it was carved into granite and we were yeah. never going to change it. And look, th- there are parts of it that are obviously have been very successful for him. But again, for example, yesterday uh, he had def- he had switched the defense pairings a little bit. And 
halfway through the first period or early in the second period, Paul Hendrick, former CHCH guy now with the Leafs, tweets out, oh, they're back. Like he, he gave it maybe a period and then put them right back and it wasn't working. And it's like, I, uh, that, that to me is the only shot I'm going to take at the guy. And because again, he's been very successful at what he's done, but if you can't, if you cannot change ever with what's going on, you're making a bed you're going to have to lie in, and it's probably not going to be very comfortable because eventually other coaches are going to change stuff up to make your situation more difficult. They're they're going to play a chess piece. Now, what are you going to do to react to that? Well, if you play the predictable same chess piece every time, they know exactly what you're doing. And and that's what's happened in the last couple of playoff series. You know, Bruce Cassidy. You know, I, I'll clearly admit that he outcoached Mike Babcock in both of those playoff series with some of the adjustments and and some of the things that they tried. Yeah, you know, Boston is led by their top line, and it's a wonderfully exciting and talented and versatile and defensively responsible top line. But at the same time, uh, you know, if you're the Leafs head coach, you you have to you know counter that move with something else. And in those particular playoff series, Cassidy got the best of Mike Babcock. And you know, understand this is not to you know walk on his grave or, or, or talk negatively of Mike Babcock because he's had a tremendous sure. you know Hall of Fame career. But and and you know, I'm guessing his stubbornness. And he's probably just a stubborn guy by nature. But because he's had success with Team Canada at the Olympic stage, with, uh, you know, the Anaheim uh, Ducks, with the, the Detroit Red Wings. You know, all along he has uh, been successful using his system, and it was successful in Toronto to a point. He just couldn't get, uh, you know, past that, uh, that last couple of hurdles. Uh, but that's not to say he's a bad coach. It's just that it, apparently it's, it was just a wrong fit here. Well, do you remember last year, at the very beginning of last season, when John Tavares arrived in Toronto, for the first week or two of the season, do you remember what the power play looked like for the Leafs at the start? Like, they were incredible. It was unconscious. Yeah, I was clicking at like 32%, which, you know, normally the top team in the league would be around 22, 23, maybe 24%. This thing was unconscious. And it was just the puck was boom, 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 and it was in the back of the net, and you went, wow, this is going to be amazing. Well, then all of a sudden, if you don't ever change anything, other teams figured out what they were doing, have made adjustments. The Leafs clearly have really not changed anything, and now the power play is among the worst in the league. And I, again, I go back to my point. The one knock I would think is, you are a bright, a very bright person. Why would you not even just say, we can always go back to my way of doing it? But, I mean, look, you're a football guy first and foremost. If you only ever pass the ball... What is the defense going to do? Well, they're going to fall back and just take away the pass. So what the reason or one of the reasons football teams run the ball, not just to get yards, but also to keep other coaches, other teams off balance a little. I don't think he kept anybody off balance. No, not at all. And, and the other thing, too, is that and this is a factor that we don't see, although we just you know hear things here and there, is that you know there was some... Uh, rubbing of the wrong way in terms of the star players on this team. You know, we, we've heard about the meetings that Bob, uh, Babcock had with uh, Austin Matthews in Arizona in the offseason to, you know, clear the air and talk about ice time and expectations and all that other stuff. Uh, and who knows if that went on with, uh, with you know, with other players uh, on the team. I'm sure it did. But, you know, to have that high-profile player on your team meet with a head coach during the offseason, maybe it happens a lot. I, I don't hear of it a lot. Uh, so there's obviously some underpinnings in terms of, you know, some of the feelings that some of the star players on this team had for Babcock. And maybe, you know, they were starting to tune him out during this six-game slide. All right, so we've got about it a minute. Really the, it was really the way they were playing. They were just well, playing yeah, sports. they looked awful. They, I mean, they just, yeah, you're right. Whether it was not trying or feeling like nothing was working and just being frustrated. So we got about a minute left here. So Sheldon Keefe comes in. He was the guy who was the coach of the Marlies. Uh, had great success, although to be fair, the Marlies also had resources that most AHL teams don't have. I mean, he had a yeah. stocked system to work with. Nonetheless, he comes in here. Let's play the two situations. They He, for the first two or three games, they look exactly the same as they did for the games before then. What is the immediate response then, that it was a mistake or people still saying Babcock needed to be fired and we'll figure this out? Well, I think the most fans will say, you know, he's still trying to feel out the team and the team's still trying to feel out him. I think that's going to be the the consensus answer. But the longer that goes, then it's going to be, uh uh-oh, you know, the team that Kyle Dubas has constructed, 
may not be as good as everyone mm. uh, initially thought. So, you know, there's going to come a point if this team continues to struggle that Keith and Dubas uh, are now on the hot seat. And I think, you know, Dubas has used the one bullet in his yep. chamber. It's a horrible analogy. But, no, that's true, though. Um, you know, this this is really his last play, and if it doesn't work, they're both walking the plank. Now, what happens if tomorrow night when they play against Arizona, not a great team, mind you, but an improved team, what happens if they come out and look like phenomenal? What, what's the what's the response? Well, you know, Lee's fans are going to be we're going all the way to the cup. You know, we have our coach <laughs> now. He, he, he's going to press all the right buttons. Uh, finally, you know, we should have made this move three years ago. Yada yada yada. So yeah, I mean the, the Rick, Rick's is, commentary for tomorrow. We already know what it's going to be now. It cup bound Friday's commentary. Yes, it's uh, look. It, it's it's. I was shocked. I well, was not shocked. I was shocked only that at when it came down today. I had not expected it today. I thought he would get a few more games, but. Uh, you don't get to, you don't get bigger than firing the coach of the Maple Leafs mid-season with that much money left on his contract and with a guy with that resume. It was uh, it was it was eye-catching today. Uh, I'm going like to be. How would you like to be Sheldon Keith? I know you got to go. I mean, first NHL gig. You're following Babcock in Toronto. Good luck with that. Yeah, you know, it could be worse things. I mean, again, neither of them are going to be starving. True, he could be in Arizona. Where nobody's watching. I mean, maybe that's a better way. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to let you get to bed because you got to be up at 2.30 or something tomorrow morning to be back on for Bill Kelly. But uh, Rick Zamperin, thanks for doing this. You got it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.